Parshat Bechukotai. We don't often get to talk about Bechukotai because usually it's together with Bahar. But this year we get to talk about it. We're in a leap year. And also it's the 39th day of Sefirat HaOmer. I hope we're all still counting with a bracha. I'm not going to ask you individually. So we're going to begin with the first Pasuk in Bechukotai. In Bechukotai Teilechu. Ve'et mitzvotai tishmeru. Va'asitem otam. So there's actually three parts of that pasuk. First, there's imbechukotai telechu, if you follow my laws. Ve'et mitzvotai tishmeru, and you observe my commandments. Va'asitem otam, and you do them. Okay? So tell me what these three things mean. If, you know, I always like to look at the, uh, the pashut, pashat. What does it actually mean? What's the difference between imbechukotai telechu and mitzvotai tishmeru and asitem otam? Oh, say, so usually that, absolutely right. Thank you, Cecile. A chok hukotai is a statute. That's how we translate it into English. Statute is a law that's just the law, that's the way it is. Now, we always use traffic analogies. Why do we stop at red and go at green? Why don't we go at green, I mean, I mean, stop at green and go at red? Because at some point in the past, they made, uh, um, uh, you know, they worked out that it's much better if you stop at red than if you stop at green. Why? Nobody knows, nobody cares. That's what we do, right? That's a statute. So, in Lechu, if you follow my statutes, vet mitzvotai tishmoru, so now we're going tishmoru, so you're going to say mitzvotai are things which are not chukim, but then you're doubling up. Because if it says, is implied. You don't have to then add. You, you can't have something which is irrelevant in the Torah. Every word has to count. Every phrase has to count. Every instruction has to count. So why do we have, why is it that we have, mitzvotai tishmeru v'asitem otam? Doesn't make any sense. So look at Rashi. So we're just going to look at Rashi. We're going to begin. By the way, this shir is beginning very innocuously. We're not looking at anything in great depth at this stage. But you're going to see we're going to veer off eventually. But let's first start with Rashi. What does the first phrase mean? So really, Rashi is going to focus on the first phrase of this pasuk, which contains three separate phrases. In Bechukotai Telechu, says Rashi, one might think that in Bechukotai Telechu implies the fulfillment of commandments. But when it then states, what does it say then? Vet mitzvotai tishmeru, and you shall observe my commandments. And then it says, vasitem otam, and do them. It is obvious that fulfillment of commandments is included in this, right? So you don't need to have the third phrase, which means that the first phrase of the Pasuk, in Bechukotai Telechu, is, has become superfluous. We didn't need it. We could simply have said, et mitzvotai tishmeru asitem otam, it would, it would have been sufficient, says Rashi. So how can one explain in Bechukotai Telechu as a warning that you should study the Torah with great effort? Look at the Hebrew. Hevu amelim batorah. Why? Almanat lishmor ulekayem. Why would you exert great effort in the study of Torah? So that you should know what to do. 
and then go ahead and do it. Well, that's interpretation. That's too easy. There's something more... Thank you, Eva. Do you think I'm going to leave it at that? You know I'm not going to leave it at that. But I'm, all I'm doing now... I did say to you that we're not starting at any great depth. I'm just translating Rashi. By the way, who's taking it from a Chazal? And we're going to see that Chazal meant much more than that. But at the very basic level, Amelim Batora means... Immerse yourself, involve yourself, exert yourself in the study of Torah. Then, that's what's going to happen as a follow-on. Study the Torah laboriously with express intention to heed and fulfill its teachings. And we have a similar pasuk in Devarim. Ulemadetem otam, ushmartem laasotam. A very similar idea expressed in Devarim which says, it's, it's the first pasuk in the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy, and you shall learn them and take heed to do them. Okay? So Rashi, at this very early stage, before we look into it too deeply, seems to be saying that Ve'et Bukhukotai Telechu is not talking about merely knowing what to do. It's talking about immersing yourself in the study of Torah to the extent that really you're involved in every aspect and detail of it. I want to read you a Mishnah which I've not included in the source sheet. It's the final Mishnah of the fifth chapter of Pirkei Avot. Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. And it begins as follows. Ben Bag Bag Omer. Do you know who Ben Bag Bag was? Anyone here know who Ben Bag Bag was? It was explained last Saturday when I was learning it and I forgot. Okay, oh, you explained last, and you didn't remember? Oh, didn't okay. Remember. Ben Bag Bag, you know who he was? He was a descendant of converts. And in those days it was illegal to be a convert. But, you know, today illegal, even if it's a felony offense, it's hardly something to be too scared about, right? In those days, if you did something which was a felony offense, it was a capital crime. And if you were converted from whatever Gentile tradition you came from to Judaism, you were liable for the death penalty. So they didn't want to let people know that Ben Bagbag was who he was. They didn't want to call him John Smith, because if they called him John Smith, then the Roman authorities would come and arrest him, and he would be put to death. He would be executed for having converted. They gave him a nickname, and the nickname was Ben Bagbag. Funny name, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Not really, because if you know what it stands for, you'll realize Ben Bagbag, Ben Ger, Ben Gioret. That's what it means. Ben Bagbag, Ben Ger, Ben Ger. So it came back to you. So Ben Bagbag, Ben Ger, Ben Gioret. By the way, there's another person quoting this mission. We'll read him in a minute. Ben Heihei. You know who Ben Heihei was? He was another descendant of converts. Why is he called Ben Heihei? Who are we if we are children of converts, if we're descended from converts? We're child's, children of Avraham and Sarah. What were they originally? Avram and Sarai. What did we change in their name? Hayes. So Ben Hayhay, the two Hayes, he's descended from the two Hayes, Avraham and Sarah. That's why he's called Ben Hayhay. He had another name, by the way. Okay, you like that? Okay. So Ben Bagbag Omer, Ben Bagbag says, Hafachba vahafachba de kulaba. Do you know what it means to be Amelim Batora? What does it actually mean? I want to ask you a question about knowledge. How many people here have read a book? Don't answer that question, I know it. Everyone's read a book, right? We know the answer. We've all read a book. How many people here have read a book 
more than once? Okay, probably. We've all read a book more than once, twice, three times. How many people here have read a book 50 times? That's very unusual, right? So what do we do with the Torah? How many times do we read the Torah? I'm not going to ask you how old you are. Because, you know, it's an embarrassing question, right? 120 times. About how many times we're going to read the Torah every year, at least once, right? The whole Torah. Why? I read it last year. Why do I have to read it again? I read it already. Right? You don't... You don't, you don't so so, so what, why are we reading it again? Hevu amelim batorah, says Ben Bagbag. Hafoch ba, v'hafoch ba, de kula ba. Do you know why? Turn it over, delve into it, do more and more study of Torah, because everything is contained in Torah. Don't think that because you read the Torah once, you came to it in its full, um, uh, full breadth and depth. Not possible. Do it again. You know, you, I, I remember every time now we're coming up in January, they're going to have the Dafyomi Siyam. You know what the Dafyomi is? Dafyomi is you learn a Daf of Gemara every single day. How many Dafim are there in the Talmud? 2,711. By the way, I want to tell you, you know there's a fellow called Daniel Liebeskind. I think I told you this last yeah, week, right? Yeah, it's a crazy story. They built the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin. And it's a series of columns over a massive area. Have you, have you been there? Okay. So they asked Daniel Liebeskind... At the, when they opened this memorial, how many of these columns are there sticking out of the ground? So he said, I don't know. So there was a journalist there who went and counted all the different um, it's columns sticking out of the ground. There's 2,711. Totally random. He had not counted them out before. It just happened to be the number that fit into that space. It's the same as the number of pages in the Talmud. And he didn't know that before. There's 2,711 pages in the Talmud. You learn through the whole Talmud, Dafyomi, but every time we come to Dafyomi Siyam, you'll see in January when, when we celebrate the completion of the next cycle of the Talmud study, if you learn one page a day, that there'll be people who say, you know, I've done, every seven and a half years, I've done Dafyomi four times. What, what, what for? Once you've done it once, surely you should learn something else. Says Ben Bagbag, no. Just because I learned it once doesn't mean I shouldn't learn it again. Hafoch ba hafoch ba. Look into it. Techeze means look into it very deeply. Grow old and grey over it. Don't think that when you're old and grey, ah, I know everything. Have you met those people who know everything? Some people, even when they're young, they tell you they know everything. Right? Don't think you know it all. You don't know it all. Umina lo tazua. Do not stir from it. Don't be distracted from it. Because there is no better thing that you could have in your life than the Torah. When we, if you want to understand Amelim Batorah, is you need to appreciate what a treasure it is so that you're constantly going over it and involved in it and doing it, etc. The study of Torah is never boring. Says Ben Heihei, he's the other descendant of converts. And listen, sometimes when they're people coming from the outside and they become part of the system, what they say is more effective than people who are part of the system. These are people who come from uh, convert families. They are so taken by the Torah, says Ben Heihei, the reward is in proportion 
to the exertion that you put into it. It's a reflection. That means as much as you put into the Torah, that's how much you're going to get out of it. Lefum tsara agra. Tsara agra. It's actually Aramaic. And what it means is what you invest into something, but we're talking here about into the Torah, is that is, a ref- is going to be reflected in the reward that you take out of it. I just said this Mishnah because I want you to understand what Rashi means by Amelim Bahevu, Amelim Torah, that you should be so deeply involved and immersed in the study of Torah, it should consume every aspect of your life. In everything that you do, I wake up in the morning, I'm involved in the Torah. I go to talk to my friend, I'm involved in the Torah. Somehow, whatever I do is related to some aspect of the Torah. That's what Ben Bagbag and Ben Hehe are telling us in this fifth chapter, the end of the fifth chapter, which by the way is the end of Pirkei Avot. It's the final Mishnah of Pirkei Avot. I know we have a sixth chapter, but that is not part of the Mishnayot. It's an extra thing that was added later. Yes. The study is not isolated, or in my opinion, should not be isolated from living, because of, unless we live, we cannot uh, analyze. We will. D- that's exactly what we're going to be discussing. And in addition to it, if we go to the first phrase, that first three attributes basically sum up the first points of Decalogue, right? It's the overture, and it tells us that if we walk that path properly, meaning living and But it's got to begin with Amelim. It's got, the, the point that Rashi wants to make, I agree with you, but why in that order? So the point that Rashi seems to be making is, unless you're Amelim, unless you're deeply immersed into it, unless it's your life force, your lifeblood, that, that's really what he's saying. Amelim means it's the oxygen that you breathe. That's what it means. Then you can know what it's about. And that, you know, we're coming up to Shavuot. Why do we say Na'asev Nishma? So the, the point is that if it needs to be, the, this is your natural life force. This is the way you think that. You know what? Eva, hold your guns. Just hold them. Don't shoot them yet. Okay, I know it's hard. Let's, let's look at the Midrash. Let's look at what David HaMelech says, because what you're about to learn is a Midrash, which is possibly one of the most powerful Midrashim about King David, in existence, okay? This, what King David says, it's an interpretation of King David, is so powerful and so incredible, and that's what we're going to try and unpack today and connect to this first pasuk of of Bechukotai. So the Midrash is as follows. So, the first we quote the pasuk, and then he says, Hadahu dikhtiv. So the pasuk in Tehillim, in Kuf Yud Tet, 119. It's the longest chapter in Tehillim. Every single one of the letters of the Aleph Bet is covered in um, chapter 119 of Tehillim. This is in the, in the part that deals it, which has the um, eighth letter of the Aleph Bet. Chet. Chishafti derachai raglai el edotecha. What does that mean? I considered my ways, Khishafti, I considered, I reflected upon my ways, and I turned my feet towards your testimonies. Now, you know, I, I, I know that Tehillim is poetry, but sometimes you read poetry and you wonder what was the poet thinking? Not, 
not you think what was the poet thinking, he doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's not really conveying any direct message to me by this line. Like, Chishavti derachai, I reflected on my ways, on the things that I do, Va'ashiva raglai el edotecha, and I turned my feet towards your testimonies. Very poetic. No, it's very I reflected up. Okay, listen to what the Midrash says. Amar David, this is what King David said. Ribonoshel Olam, God Almighty. Bechol yom vayom, every single day, hayiti mechashev omer lamakom ploni ulevet dira plonit aniholech. Every morning I woke up and I said to myself, "Where am I going today? Oh, I'm going. I'm going to the store. I'm going here. I'm going there." What happened? But my feet, that's what was going on in my head. But I got, I got out of my house and my feet directed me towards the shul and towards the Beit Midrash. So what, what is that telling us? That's what it means when it says in the Pasuk. My feet had their own opinion as to where they should be going. My head was thinking here, there, I'm going somewhere else, I'm traveling, I'm flying, I don't know where I'm going. My feet knew exactly where they were going. That's what this pasuk means. I had in mind something else completely. But my feet went somewhere else. They went to where they wanted to go. Where was that? To the Batei Knesiot and the Batei Midrashot. Rav Huna B'Shem Rav Achamar. He's explaining it, or perhaps giving another opinion, as we're going to see. I thought about the reward that I get for mitzvot. You know, when I was, you know, waking up in the morning and thinking, what should I do? I said, let me do a mitzvah, because if I do a mitzvah, I'm going to get a reward. And I was thinking also, if I do an Avera, that's not such a good idea for me to do an Avera. Perhaps I shouldn't do that. That's what was going on rationally in my brain. You know, your brain is a rational instrument. That's what it is. Mechanically, your brain should think rationally. But then there's things which are beyond your brain, which, don't, which are not part of your rational thinking. And that's what this is about. This, this, um, Pasuk is about. But you know what? That's not why I did the mitzvahs. Because your feet don't have a brain. Your feet do what your feet do. Your brain does what your brain does. Your feet do what your feet do. Says the Midrash, actually what was happening here is, I woke up in the morning, I'm thinking I should do this, I shouldn't do that. Should I do something? I'm not sure. Whatever I need to... Whatever the chishafti situation was, my feet directed me in the right way. Rabbi Menachem Chatna, the Rabbi Elazar Avina Amar. So Rabbi Menachem, the son-in-law of Rabbi Lazar Bar Avina, said, "Chishavti mashikatavta lana b'Torah im bechut kotai telechu." What is this parsha about? This parsha is telling us: if you follow my statutes, if you do the right thing, everything's going to be great. Brachot are going to shower down upon you. You are going to have the most wonderful life if you follow my statutes. That's what I was thinking. Umachtiv taman v'natati shalom ba'aretz. 
I'm going to give peace in the land. And if you don't listen to me, what's written afterwards, everything's going to be terrible. So that's what I was going on in my mind. In other words, rationally, I was reflecting on what was going on in Parshat Bechukotai. But my feet did something else. Rabbi Abba Bereder of Chia B'Shem, Rabbi Yonatan Omar. And uh, so Rabbi Abba says, he was the son of Rabbi Chia, and he said it in the name of Rabbi Yonatan. Chishavti brachot, chishavti klalot. I thought, you know, in Bechukotai, there's blessings, there's curses. That's what's going on in my mind. Brachot me'alef adtav. So if you look, the word that begins in Bechukotai Telechu, what letter does it begin with? Aleph. I'm not going to go to the end of the parasha, but the end of the brachot ends with the letter Taf. So if you look, all the brachot are, con- are, are contained, as it were, they're sandwiched between the first letter of the Aleph Bet and the last letter of the Aleph Bet. Klalot, but the klalot begin with a vav, v, and we don't need to continue. It begins with a vav, but if you look at the end of the klalot, it ends with a hey. Where's the hey come in the um, Aleph Bet in terms of Vav? It's before the Vav. It's backwards. It doesn't go hey Vav, it goes Vav hey. Amar Rabbi Avin. Do you know what Rabbi Avin said about that? If you, if you do the right thing and you merit, I will reverse the blessings the curses into blessings. In other words, if you know what you're doing and you make it right, I will reverse the curses into blessings. That's, like, that's like basically saying tshuva. So, so you have you, to... you, but it's going to be more than that. You can act, you're going to see that later on. You can actually turn curses into blessings. It's all about perspective. And the very same thing that can be considered a curse in another perspective, can be considered a blessing. Eimatai, when will that happen? Keshetishmeru et torati, when you are observing my Torah, hadawotikhtiv in bechukotai telechu. So now we understand the context. So we've gone from David HaMelech in his pasuk, chishavti derachai. You make, you know, we have this Yiddish expression, um, man plans and and... And God laughs, right? So the idea being is that there's some automatic force that directs you in the right direction. You're on autopilot. How do I get on that autopilot? What button do I need to press? Isn't that a great autopilot to be on? That my feet take me in the, in the right direction even if I want to do the wrong thing? Wouldn't that be a great button that I could press in my life? I want to have that button. I want to have that button. I want to be able to press that button that even though my mind is thinking one thing, I'm going actually in the right direction. Let's, let's look at that. Um, first, we're going to look at a, gem- at a Gemara. Can I say something? Of course. Um, just in addition to what you said, the Torah cultivates the way of living. Therefore, it turns the experiences which we live into the wisdom. And that wisdom potentially leads us towards meaningful life, if that's the essence of the living. Right. Because of that meaningful, synonym, righteous life is 
potentially our goal. And we walk that path because of he talks about walking, right? And we have the chance to turn the things one way or the other based on the free will. But no, we're talking something which is a little, it's beyond that. So we have free will, but there's something which is beyond free will, well, which is, let's, I'm going to use the word conditioning. Why do you eat with a knife and fork? Don't tell me you know why, because you don't. It, there, there was a point at which you knew, but you don't really know now. Okay? At some point, somebody told you it's not nice to eat with your hands, and you shouldn't use a fork to pick your ears. All right? Somebody told you that. I don't know when it was. It may have happened to you. It definitely happened to me. And from that time on, I eat with a knife and fork. Now, when I come to a table and I see a plate in front of me, and on the right side is a knife, and on the left side is a fork, I don't have to think to myself. I pick up the knife and I pick up the fork and I eat my food. I don't have to, con I don't have to think, now, what do I do here in this situation? There's food on my plate. What should I do to eat it? I don't have to think. I'm on autopilot, right? I, I'm conditioned to understand what the right thing to do is. Now, it could be that in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, should I eat with my hands? Shouldn't I eat with my hands? But meanwhile, my hand, one hand goes to the knife, the other one goes to the fork, and I eat the food on my plate, even while all the things may be going on in my mind. The point, it seems, of this Midrash is that David HaMelech is saying that there's lots of things going on in your mind. But shouldn't you, isn't it, good to be in a, in a place where you're going to do the right thing whatever goes on in your mind so yes your your mind is a place which is full of ideas and which is full of contemplations and considerations but in the end you want to do the right thing how are you going to how can i press that button let's let's please let's look at the gomorrah and kedushin and we're going to come back to this all the questions you have will be dealt with i promise you and if they're not, you can hold me to that. Okay? Just make a quick comment. Yes. Because um, it kind of made a lot of sense to me. It's thinking about the free will element of it, right? So free will is not, you know, free will is a, uh, is a good thing. It's a, it's a blessing and a curse because you can do bad things with it. But if your conditions, if you immerse yourself in that thinking, it is, it's going to inform your free will to follow Of course. So, so how, uh, how do we behave? We like to think that we're completely independent beings. We're not. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? So it sounds like from the Midrash, what the Midrash is saying, that actually that's a good thing. Sometimes I want my feet to take me in the right direction. They could take me here, but actually they're going to take me over there. And that's actually the place I need to be. It could be the place I want to be is over there, because my mind sends me in the wrong direction. But the place I need to be is somewhere else completely. David HaMelech is saying, in Bechukotai Teilechu, is somehow connected to this idea of Chishavti Derachai, but my feet took me in another way. It's a it's a, that's a blessing. So let's, ha let's have a look. But so, this goes back to Genesis 1, when, uh, when man was created in image of God. So two. theoretically, we might have that knowledge, inner knowledge of good which we cultivate as we live. We may cultivate, but what does free will mean? With this, we are now, and we haven't even got to the reward and punishment bit yet, but what we're now discussing is this, there's, a, there's a fine line between free will and doing the right thing. 
not even a fine line. There's this sort of parallel universe. It's a parallel universe. I want to do the right thing, and at the same time, I want to be fully independent. But what does full independence mean? Like, I know I just go, to go back to the knife and fork situation. It doesn't matter how hard you press me, if I'm sitting in front of a plate with a knife and a fork, I'm never going to eat with my hands. So do I really have free will? Where's my free will? Tell me where my free will is. I want to eat with my hands. My head is thinking, what should I use this stupid knife and fork for? Then I have to wash them up. What do I need to do? I may as well eat from the plate with my hands. So I'll have to wash my hands. Big deal. That's what's going on in my head. My, my hands go to the knife and they fork and they start cutting the food and I eat the food that way. In other words, there's a certain point beyond which your free will, your, what's going on in your head doesn't affect your actions. Like, I mean, I'm going to give you a stupid social situation. You know, there's somebody you really don't like. And, you, you know, you've told your wife, your husband, I really, I can't stand that person. And they come up to you and say, hey, how are you? And you say, oh, I'm fine. It's so lovely to see you. When you. How fake are you? Right? You're the most fake person in the world. A minute ago, you're saying how much you hate this person. You never want to speak to them. They're the most obnoxious person you've ever heard of, you've ever seen. You never want to speak to them. You're chill. Whatever it is. And then the person walks up to you and says, how are you? And you say, hey, I'm fine. Why? Your natural response in a social situation is to do the right thing, not make a fight. I don't want to make a fight. Is that fake? No, it's what David Amelech is saying. Your head is thinking one thing, but your legs are taking you in another direction. How does that work? What I'm trying to understand here is the dynamics of that situation. Let's look. Now, I, I, I confused yesterday when I was doing the source sheet. When, when you get it online, it's going to be fine. But here, the printout is slightly different. Look at page three. It's a Gemarin Kiddushin. The Mishnah says, anyone who performs one mitzvah has goodness bestowed upon him. His life is lengthened and he inherits the land. When we say the land, what it means is life in the world to come. However, anyone who does not perform one mitzvah does not have the goodness bestowed upon him. His life is not lengthened and he does not inherit the land. In other words, the world to come. Olam haba. Now this is just generally speaking, uh, very problematic because we don't have any reference to Olam Haba in the Torah. It's something that's not even discussed. But the Talmud is very busy with Olam Haba. And it, that's a discussion in and of itself. We may come to it later. And we've certainly spoke about, about it, spoken about it in the past. That the Torah refuses to mention the concept of Olam Haba. Olam Haba is the world to come. A, in other words... The ultimate reward is not any reward you receive on this world, in this world, in the physical, material world. It's a spiritual reward that you receive in heaven, whatever that may mean. And I'm not that I'm certainly not going to delve into today. But the Mishnah is telling you: if you do one mitzvah, you're going to get the world to come. And if you do uh, one avera, or if you don't perform a mitzvah, you're not going to have that. It's going to be very tough on you. So that's, um, that's a shear in Elul. That's not a shear for now. That's a shear for Teshuvah. You'll have to come back in Elul. Hopefully you'll be back before. <laughs> Says the Gemara. Viraminhi. You know what the word Viraminhi means? Or Aminhi? You know what it means? That is a code word in Talmudic language for... Uh, excuse me. I've got something which says exactly the opposite of what you've just told me. It's a contradiction, okay? The Gemara raises a contradiction from a Mishnah, and we're familiar with a Mishnah because we say it every morning 
in the very first prayers that we say in Shacharit. What is that Mishnah? These are the matters that a person engages in and enjoys their profits in this world. But the principal reward remains for him or her in the world to come. What are we talking about? Eluhain. Kibbut Av. I am being respectful to your parents. Gemilut chasadim. Doing kindness to others. Hachnasat orchim. Being generous and hostful to guests. Vahavat shalom ben adam lachaviro. Ensuring that there's peace between two people who may be um, uh, uh, you know, enemies. The Talmud Torah keneged kulam, and the study of Torah is, is above all of those things. What does that indicate? That one is rewarded in this world only for fulfilling these mitzvot, but not fulfilling, for fulfilling all mitzvot. The Mishnah said, if you do kol ha'oseh mitzvah achat, mativin lo. It doesn't say these specific mitzvot, it says any mitzvah. Says the Gemara, uh, excuse me, we have a Mishnah that says something completely different. It's a contradiction to the one that you just said here. So the Mishnah in Kiddushin is contradicted by the Mishnah in Pe'ah. Amar of Yehuda, says Rabbi Yehuda, this is what the Mishnah is saying. Let's explain what the Mishnah is saying. Anyone who performs one mitzvah in addition to his other merits and thereby tips the scale of all his deeds to the side of righteousness, has goodness bestowed upon him and is compared to one who fulfills the entire Torah. So the Gemara is not entirely happy with that. And the Gemara asks, one can learn by inference from here that with regard to those mitzvot listed in the Mishnah and Peah, one is rewarded even for one of them, notwithstanding the fact that overall his sins are more numerous. So You've just come up with an answer that actually is not quite what it says in the Mishnah in Pe'ah. All you need to do is one of those mitzvot in Pe'ah and you are going to be rewarded here and in the world to come. So that's not quite what you were saying. So answers Rabbi Shemaya. The other Mishnah serves to say that if one's sins and merits are of equal balance, in other words, he's accrued an equal amount of merit and sin. One of these mitzvot tilts in the scale of his favor. So we're, you can see what this discussion is about. What is reward and punishment? That's where we're heading. That's the direction that we're heading. So the Gemara asks, V'rimin <laughs> So the Gemara says that there's a contradiction from a Baraita. Baraita is an alternative source of Talmudic information not contained in the Mishnah. And this is what the Baraita says. Anyone whose merits are greater than his sins is punished with suffering in order to cleanse his sins in this world and enable him to merit full reward for his mitzvot in Olam Haba, in the world to come. So anyone whose merits are greater, you did a lot of mitzvot, but unfortunately you did quite a few avirot as well. Obviously present company excluded. But there are people who've done many, many mitzvot, but they've also done avirot. So how are we going to deal with them? So they're going to suffer in this world in order to cleanse their sins in this world so that they can, they can inherit or achieve the full merit of the world to come when they get there. 
We are definitely in that territory, but we're, I'm not going to quite go there, but we're in that territory. And due to this punishment, he appears to observers like one who burned the entire Torah without leaving even one letter remaining of it. So if somebody, you see somebody who's suffering, <laughs> do you know why he's suffering? You saw that fellow, he's lost all his money, nobody talks to him. Of course, he must be a Russia. He must be a Russia. Otherwise, why would Hashem punish him? That's the way he appears to everybody, because we're so quick to judge. So one of the human, human weaknesses is that we're very quick to judge, you know. Uh, like my friend uh, always says, there's, uh, if there's one thing that we can agree upon, it's who we don't like, right? <laughs> you know, so, you know th that's, that's like, like the, the, the natural instinct of a human being. Conversely, one whose sins are greater than his merits has goodness bestowed upon him in this world, and he appears like one who has fulfilled the entire Torah without lacking the fulfillment of even one letter of it. So you see people, and you know they're a shy. A gunnaf, I never saw a gunnaf like that fellow. He's, he's got the nicest house, he's got 15 cars, and every, everybody loves him. How's that even possible? He's such a Russia. So, oh, it must be that he's not such a Russia. I mean, like, I mean, we have to follow the logic, right? Follow the evidence. The evidence says he's not a Russia because you see that everything is wonderful for him. Says the Gemara, continues the Gemara, turn to page four. Omar Abaya. Abaya said, when the Mishnah says that he's rewarded, it means that he has one good day and one bad day. Not a brilliant answer. He's rewarded for the mitzvot he performs. Nevertheless, occasionally he also has bad days, which cleanse him of his sins, and the brighter is referring to those days. So he comes up with what I would call a technical answer. You know, I'm trying to find a way of making sure that the brighter fits in them. With the Mishnah, Abaya came up with a technical answer, and it's really what Rava says which is going to get you excited, okay? Rava Amar. That the Mishnah and this Baraita represent two different opinions. And in accordance with whose opinion is this Baraita? It's in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Yaakov. What did Rabbi Yaakov say? Sechar mitzvah Baha'i alma leka. There is no such thing as reward for the performance of a mitzvah in this world. Be very clear, says Rabbi Yaakov. If you see somebody who's got a great life, don't imagine for one second that that has any relationship with mitzvot that he did. Nothing to do with it. There is no such thing as getting the schar mitzvah in this world. Why? Because you're only rewarded in the world to come. The reward that one receives, whatever the word reward means, whatever it means to receive sechar mitzvah, is only relevant in the world to come. We now have a problem. What because we don't know. We don't know. What? What about the car? You've got a much bigger problem. You're going to see. You've got a much bigger problem than that. You think stakas a problem? You've got a much bigger problem. Yeah, you're totally, you're in uncharted territory. We are dealing with a spiritual issue which we are debating in pragmatic terms. We're trying to rationalize something which isn't rational. But, that's but, but and you're going to see here, and, and, and this is what's so scary. Detanya, Rabbi Yaakov Omer, Ein lecha kol mitzvah mitzvah shektuvah batara shematan tzchara betzida, she'ein tchiyat hametim tuluyaba. Rabbi Yaakov says there's no such thing as a mitzvah which is written in the Torah, even when a 
when the reward is mentioned alongside it, which has got nothing to do with it, because actually the schar, the reward, is in the world to come. What are we talking about? There's two mitzvot. There's two specific mitzvot in the Torah where the reward is mentioned in association with the mitzvah. The first one is kibud avaim. What does it say? Leman yarichun yamecha. If you are somebody who has kibud avaim, you will live a long life. Leman yarichun yamecha. Right? There's no other way to interpret it. What is it when leman yarichun yamecha? You're going to live a long life. You're going to have a long, healthy life. Wait. Uleman yitavlach. Bishiloch hakan. There's another mitzvah where the similar thing is mentioned. Shiloh hakan. When you send away the mother bird and you take the eggs or the, or the, or the chicks, what does it say? Leman yitavlach. It's going to be good for you. Vaharachta yamim. And you're going to have a long life. If you take the eggs. Or, we're not going to go into that. We, I gave a share on that already. But there's two. There's two mitzvot in the Torah where it's mentioned that Yarichun Yamecha and Yitavlach. One is Kibud Avaim and the other one is Shiluach Hakan. Now he tells a story. Despite this, do you know what happened? There's a story. There was a guy and his father said to him, climb to the top of the building and fetch me the chicks from that. Do you see over there? The, the top, there's a nest there, there's chicks. Send the mother bird away. Get the chicks for me. We're going to have Shiluah Hakan. Anyway, so the son, he's beautiful. He climbed, he went up the ladder and he sent the mother bird away and he took the young. So what did he do by doing that? Kibud Avaim. And Shiluah Hakan, right? So what's going to happen? He's going to have a long, not once, twice. He's going to have a long life and he's going to be Yitavlach. Guess what? He's climbing down the ladder. He fell down the ladder and he died. This is a story. Uh, 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 one second! What, what happened to the guy? This is a Gomorrah. They, we're not talking about this. It's not a fairy tale. It's a Gomorrah. The Gomorrah says this story happened. Rabbi Yaakov knew this story. He knew the guy. The guy said, sent his son to the top of the end, and the guy comes running to Rabbi Yaakov and he says to him, Excuse me, the Torah said that my son should have a long life. Not once, but twice. And he climbed down the ladder and he fell off the ladder and he died. Your Torah is not a Torah. What it says in the Torah isn't true. It doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So Rabbi Yaakov says to him, ah, you're misinterpreting it because you're interpreting it in the way that you understand it. What does it mean? Oh, he's going to have a long life. He's going to live till he's 150. We used to say till 120, but that's not long enough anymore, right? We need with, the, with people living into old age. You know, Herman Wook just died at the age of 103, right? And we're all aiming to beyond. We, we need to live longer than Herman Wook, for sure, right? Chutzpah. He was, he, he was mechabed his av, and he did shiluach hakan, and he died. Says Rabbi Yaakov, uh-uh, you made a mistake. Leman yitavlach, leolam shekulo tov. The word yitav doesn't mean in this world, it means in the next world. Leman yarichun yomecha, leolam shekulo aruch. So the whole concept of reward and punishment has nothing to do with this world. It's got everything to do with the world that we little understand. So we're trying, as Eva was saying, to rationalize something which isn't rational. But we're so busy because really what we are, doesn't matter what profession we're in, we're bean counters, right? I did this over here, so I'm going to get that over there. That's the way we think. That's the way, you know, I press this 
I press this button, it's like a vending machine. I press the button, I put the quarter in, I press the button and the Diet Coke came out at the bottom. Or Coke, depends what you're drinking, it depends what risk you want to take, right? But that's, we think life is a vending machine. I pressed over here, I put the quarter in over there and I'm gonna get that somewhere else. It's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. So what are the dynamics of reward and punishment? And particularly in the context of the parsha that we're reading, which is full of barachot and kalalot. So the Torah here is talking about something which seem, it seems like the Torah is presenting us with a very prosaic, very basic, you do this and you get that. That means if you put the quarter in over here, you're going to get the Diet Coke can over there. And we just said that's not quite the way it works. The Talmud is not agreeing with that perspective. So what does the Imbuchukotai mean? What does it mean that if I do the right thing that God will do the right thing by me? What does it mean that if I don't do the right thing then the wrong thing is going to happen? How do we explain to those that Vera mentioned earlier who do the wrong thing and they have a good life or do the right thing and have a bad life? How do we even explain it? How do we get it into our heads? How do we live as full, believing, faithful, God-believing Jews if we see a subverted world right there in front of us? Suggestion. Uh, Just one? That's why they push it to that world to come. And going back to David's song, what he basically is saying is that it's about something else, that that pragmatic award. Uh, if I may, the other religion, that's what Paul thinks when he talks about God's kingdom of the, of the earth. That's what Asians mean when they talk Zen or... Um, they um, want to anthropomorphize the world. No, they want to that, bring that... They want to humanize... Is yeah. happiness. No. Good life uh, is the satisfaction or meaningful life gained through wisdom, which we attribute. But that's not what it says in the Torah, thank you. I, I love the idea. And I'm sure that, uh, by the way, Paul knew the Torah better than you and me. But that's not what it says in the Torah. The Torah is very clear. In everything's going to be good. And if not, everything's going to be bad. So how do you explain that? Because that seems to be a yin and a yang. It depends what the good is and we don't have okay. it. Yeah, but the good is very much expressed in very direct and very understandable terminology in the Torah. Good means, for example, that you're going to have your crops on time because otherwise we're not going to eat. Good means that people are not going to come and attack you and kill you. That's good. Yeah, these are all things which are said in the Torah. Bad means that your crops are not going to come on time. And people are going to come and attack you and kill you. And you are going to be sick and not be able to look after your children and be there for the bar mitzvahs. Right? I mean, it's very clear. So if that's what it means, if you're good, if you keep the mitzvahs, then everything's going to be fine. And if you don't, oh, everything's going to be terrible. That seems to be not what the Talmud is saying. It's nothing to do with Olam Haba, it's to do with this world. By the way, that's exactly how the Sadducees viewed the Torah. They said there's no mention of the world to come. It's only this world. Literalists. Literalists. That's exactly what they were. But we're not that. The Talmud does not buy into that. 
and it's got many proofs, but we still have to understand the actual basic translation of the words in the Torah. The Torah seems to be conveying this idea, do this and that will happen, don't do that and that will happen. How do we get our heads around that? How do we explain it if we believe in a world to come and that that's really the dominant force? Let's look at the Shemish world. Yes, yes, but what King David seems to be saying, that was right at the beginning, is that there's a certain element of conditioning that will, uh, will enable you to do the right thing, and that seems to somehow fold into this equation. So I want to understand how that works. Let's quickly look at the Shem Mishmuel. I'm not sure I'll finish the whole thing. It's at the bottom of page 4 and page 5. So the Medrash, he says, is very confounding, and we're going to try and understand it. I'm not going to say every word in Hebrew. Rashi says that you should be Amelim Batorah. So remember I said that at the beginning, the whole concept of Ben Bagbag and Ben Hehe of being Amelim Batorah. Vapirush Mukrach, what does it mean? It says, What does Tishmaru mean? It means the study of Torah. What does knowledge mean? Knowledge means I know something. Knowing something is not amelim. You know, you can know something and you can be completely immersed in something and it's very, very different. I know what is right and what is wrong, or I've learned things in my life. I don't know, it's a long time since I've learned algebra, but I'm sure that if somebody gave me an algebraic um, equation, I could work it out. Even though I'm not an amel, I'm not immersed in algebra. But you have to be a melimba Torah. That's not just knowing it, that you know the information. Both limud, it says in the Pasuk, and asitemotam to do them, it says. So what does imbuchukotait mean? There is, for some reason, a real heavy, strong focus on this concept of being immersed in the Torah. Being, you know, it's like being in, a, I remember years ago, we, um, we had a guest for Friday night dinner at the shul, I was the rabbi, and he was so excited to be there. He was a very famous British actor, and he said, you know, I, I, I just feel in this company like I'm in a big warm bowl of chicken soup. <laughs> I don't know with or without matzah balls, I can't remember. <laughs> The point is that being a melimba Torah means you're like in a big warm bowl of Torah chicken soup. That's really what it means. So that's what the imbuchukotai telechu actually means. Um, so now, there's a problem. Mikomakom yeshlahavin. What, what does it actually mean? Kiliyot a melimba Torah lihioto halicha lichora yitztak yoter bemishpatim shetamam nigle. So why does it say ve'im b'chukotai te'lechu? Why does it use the word b'chukotai? If you want to be a melim b'torah, wouldn't it be easier to be a mel in things that you understand? What are chukim? Chukim are things that you don't understand. Trying to understand things that you don't understand that you can probably never understand are a waste of time. So if the Torah is going to give you an instruction, it should say, Ve'im b'mishpatai te'lechu. Not ve'im b'chukotai te'lechu. 
Because a chok is not something that you're going to understand. So you can't be amel in a chok. It doesn't make logical sense. Says um, the Shem Ishmuel, an incredible idea. Venir air, look, it's underlined at the bottom of page four. Delav al the Imbuchukotaitelehu is not actually talking about chukim. It's not talking about being an amel in chukim. That's not what it means. What does it mean? Kagon shatnes v'chodome. You know what shatnes is? You're not allowed to mix um, wool and linen. So you can't be an amel in that. You're not allowed to mix wool and linen. Why? I have no idea. That's the end of your amelut. You can't be more amel in that situation. That's it. That's the end of the story. So what is it talking about? Elah. Do you know what it's talking about? The concept of being an amel, of being immersed in Torah, is in and of itself something that defies our understanding. Being in that big warm bowl of chicken soup, constantly, is something that is beyond rational explanation. We can try and understand it, but that in and of itself is what the Pasuk is telling us. And then it goes, The the fact that the Torah demands of us that we must constantly be immersed in Torah is in and of itself a chok. If you don't constantly immerse yourself in Torah, you live in that Torah environment, that it's, it, uh, is con- you're constantly involved in every aspect of your life in the Torah, that in and of itself means that you haven't fulfilled and discharged your duty. And you could say to yourself, why? Why do I need that? I go to shul once a week. You know, I always wear a yarmulke when I say Birkat Amazon. Well, sometimes I don't. I mean, you know, think of all the things I do Jewish. So I spend, you know, 15% of my time as a Jew. The rest of my time, I'm in the world. I'm, I'm out there. I, I, I'm busy. I'm doing other stuff. So it doesn't make sense. You know, can't I be just my regular person? No, the whole point is, you're not going to understand why. You need to be constantly floating like a matzo ball in that big bowl of warm chicken soup. That's what you need to be doing. That's what the Pasuk is telling us. Even though it's not something that we can deeply understand. You know what the incredible thing about Torah is? If you are an Amalba Torah, your life will automatically change as a result. And the decisions you make will be influenced by you being that matzibor. Incredible as it sounds, that's what's going to happen. It doesn't happen with all types of other philosophy. I think I've told that story before about Bertrand Russell. Have you heard that story before? I think I've told it before. Bertrand Russell was was a professor in Harvard. He taught theology and he taught um, um, philosophy uh, and ethics. He was a professor of ethics at Harvard University. Anyway, believe it or not, he had an affair with one of the other professor's wives. And they called him in in front of the ethics committee of Harvard University. 
And they said to him, you know, really? I mean, come on, right? You're a professor of ethics and you're having an affair with this poor man's wife. He says, I want to ask you a question. Is there a professor of mathematics here? He says, yeah, sure. Did you ask him why he's not a triangle? <laughs> that's what it means. And shar chachamot, it doesn't affect the way you think. Yeah, of course, you understand logically that that's the right way. It's like, you know, it's like the, uh, the tax lawyer. He knows everything about tax, but what does he actually help you do? Cheat taxes, right? The whole point is not that you should pay your taxes, but that you shouldn't pay your taxes. So what does the Torah teach you? If you're an Amalba Torah, not if you know Torah. Yidiyata Torah is not enough. Knowing Torah is not enough. But if you're an Amalba Torah, if you're constantly immersed in Torah, it will influence the, the person that you become. You will become a different person. Right? Um, now we can understand the end of the Pasuk. So, so it has to say first. So now, means I'm an Amal Batorah. Now I need to know what to do. That's already the next stage. How do I behave? Okay, I'm an Amal Batorah. I'm in that life. What do I need to do? And then actually, so now the three phrases make sense. We'll just learn one more piece of this, uh, of this incredible um, Shem Mishmuel, and the rest I'll leave up to you. And now we understand what, you know, all the questions that are asked about the good things that are promised in Bechukotai and the bad things which are also indicated as. Um, potential consequences in Bechukotai. We said in the Gemara, there's no such thing as getting benefit in this world. And the Rambam explains, What is the concept? I've spoken about this many, many times. What is the concept of reward and punishment in this world? It's not reward and punishment. It is consequences. If you do the right thing, the consequences will be as follows. If you don't do the right thing, the consequences will be as follows. It's not reward and punishment. Reward and punishment is something that we're talking about in the other world, in Olam Haba. But here in this world, there are consequences to your actions. You don't need to be a great philosopher or theologian to understand that, right? If I meet someone and I'm rude to them, what is the likely consequence? they're going to be rude right back, right? I don't think that we need to be a genius to work that one out. If I'm nice to people, what's going to happen? They're going to be nice to me. Of course they are. I'm going to say, hey, so lovely to see you. What are they going to say back to me? Oh, nice to see you too. If you smile at someone, they'll smile back at you. If you scowl at someone, they'll probably scowl back at you, or maybe worse, because they're going to treat you the way you treat them. The same is in mitzvot. There are consequences. God says nature is such that if you behave in a particular way, then things are going to happen either one way or the other. It's the natural consequences of your actions. People's expressions are a consequence of what's going on in their minds, right? If somebody is depressed, 
you're not going to see them in a, with a smiling face necessarily. Why? Because their expression is going to be a window into what's going on in their emotions. If somebody's really happy, you're going to be able to tell they give off that vibe of happiness. So too with mitzvot. The consequence, the natural consequence of that is that God is going to try his best to make sure that you're going to be able to continue in that way. Now, it's not an equation. It's not an algebraic equation because life is messier than that. There's lots of other factors that get in the way of that exact equation. But the bottom line is that that really is going to be the overriding factor in the, in the uh, um, history of a person's life. If we look back on our lives, we know that the good things resulted in good and the bad things result in bad. It's not always immediate in every single day that that's the way it works, but overall, if we look back, the broad picture is going to be that. Umuvan. So now we understand what David HaMelech is saying. It doesn't really matter what's going on in my head. The whole Mizmor is talking about this concept of somebody who is deeply immersed, involved, his life is a reflection of the Torah that he is involved with. My nature, the consequence of my amelut in Torah is such that I am going to go in the right direction. Habit-forming Amal Batorah. Amelut Batorah becomes the natural instinct of my life. It becomes who I am. Even if my head is somewhere else. And God is not going to make, is not going to test me. God is not going to, uh, uh, you know, create problems for me. I'm not I'm never going to be in that situation. I'm a good person in a good situation, so that even if bad things, I'm, I'm tempted, it's not going to be temptation for me. Because naturally, I'm going to be inclined to go in the right direction. David HaMelech says, be an Amal Batorah. Your Amelut Batorah becomes your defense mechanism, even subconsciously. You're not even aware of it. Simply by virtue of the fact that you are an Amal Batorah, your feet will get you in the right direction. Your natural instinct will point you in the way that you should go. Is that a reward? I want to ask you a question. Is that a reward? Yeah. Well, kind of, but it's not the reward of Olam Haba. It's a consequence. It's the Imbechokotai. It translates into a reward later. Yeah, no. But in life, yes, we could use the word reward. But it's not really a reward. You know why I eat with a knife and fork? Because my mommy trained me when I was young that that's the nice way to eat. Is that a reward that I eat nicely? I mean, you could interpret it that way. It's a natural consequence 
of me being an amal, of having an amelut in nice table manners. So the idea here of the imbuchukotai telechu is making sure that I'm in the right environment, in the right atmosphere, constantly involved and immersed in the right thing, so that my feet, says David HaMelech, will send me in the right direction, even if my head is sending me in another direction. And that, really, is what Bechukotai is all about. The Bechukotai Telechu. If I am somebody who is an Amal Batorah, Hevu Amelim Batorah, then I will do the mitzvot. I will learn them and do them. And then the consequences of that are that things will go the, in the right direction. Not at every stage of your life. Things will go wrong. But overall, the trend is always going to be in the right direction. My feet will send me in the right direction. The decisions I make will be governed by the fact that I am an Amal Torah. That is really the, the depth of this pasuk. That very first phrase, is there to teach you that your natural instinct, you need to train yourself that your natural instinct is Torah, so that you do the right thing, so that the consequences are right. We'll leave it here. Now when you turn it off, if you want to different location,